75 years ago, months after the Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor, the federal government opened up 10 concentration camps to warehouse every one of the 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry from the West Coast. Two-thirds of them were U.S. citizens. Most people believe that such a thing should never happen again in the United States to any group, racial, ethnic, religious, or otherwise. I'm Eric Muller, and I think the best way to make sure something doesn't happen again is to know what the thing was that actually happened. That's what this podcast does. It tells stories based on actual events in the lives of real people uprooted from their homes and forced to live in America's concentration camps, not because of anything they had done, but simply because of who they were. I call it Scapegoat Cities. Dogs just know when something's up. Julius Maruse Down was pacing around the tiny living room of his family's little house at 722 and a half North Madison in East Hollywood with their four-year-old purebred Pomeranian Tiz at his heels. Tiz only did this when she sensed something was not right. Something was not right. It was late April of 1942. Two miles up Melrose at the Paramount lot, the studio's new starlet Frances Gifford was just finishing up shooting the romantic comedy My Heart Belongs to Daddy, while Lucille Ball was on the set of The Big Street at RKO around the corner. But Julius wasn't living in any Hollywood rom-com. Just this morning, signs had gone up on the telephone poles in his neighborhood addressed in big block letters to all persons of Japanese ancestry, telling them that they had two weeks to clear out. The posters said that anything they wanted to bring with them had to be securely packaged and tied, and that they could only take with them what they themselves could carry. Julius's wife Eunice would mostly be carrying their three-month-old baby Juliet, who wouldn't be carrying anything. So if Julius couldn't handle it, that meant it wasn't going, at least not until they could have some stuff shipped to them wherever they were going. And who knew when that would be, or where? Julius looked around the room, sizing everything up in his mind, weighing everything with his eyes, picturing which things might fit inside which other things, which things he could hold in his hands or under his arms, and which things he could sling across his back. There was that beautiful wooden RCA radio phonograph console he'd bought slightly used from Mr. Tomofuku for 125 bucks back in January. What an idiot he had been to buy something heavy like that, knowing how uncertain things were because of Pearl Harbor. And with shortwave radio reception to boot, he was a resident alien in the United States, a citizen of Japan. What had he been thinking? Now it wasn't just a nuisance. In his hands, it was contraband. He'd have to get the shortwave removed for sure, which would knock down the price when he sold it, which he was going to have to do, and pronto. Plus, there was the table model Packard Bell radio they kept in the bedroom, the one Eunice had bought a year earlier for 20 bucks, brand new. Didn't have shortwave, but it was too big to take. And there was that $7 mahogany end table Eunice had bought back in October, and the matching one Julius had built himself with three bucks worth of lumber. No way of taking them along. And the beautiful dinner china set that they had received as a wedding present last summer. And all of the kitchenware Eunice had accumulated over the nine months they'd been married. Must have been $25 or $30 worth of stuff there. He doubted they'd be cooking wherever they were going, and anyway, it was all pretty heavy. And there was the silverware set for eight that Eunice's mom and dad had given them for the wedding. Heavy and probably useless. It was pretty stuff, simple but elegant. 
Must have cost at least $35 when they bought it, probably more. And the ironing board, and the two drying racks standing in the kitchen, and all of these knickknacks, the statuettes, and the lacquered boxes, and jade combs, and those two gold-plated Buddhas he had insisted on keeping out even though Eunice wanted them boxed up and put away. Another $45 worth of stuff right there at a minimum. And then there were all of the supplies and equipment for the baby. This they probably would need wherever they were going. Babies were babies, no matter what the circumstances were. But it was heavy and bulky, and there was just no way they could take it. The bathinet he'd gotten from the owner of the laundry where he worked as a sweater presser until the boss had to let him go because he was an alien. That was worth $15 if it was worth a nickel. And there was the crib, another $15 or $18. And that stroller contraption, the tailor tot, that had set them back $7. Julia sat down to try to come up with a plan. They had until May 10th, two weeks. Little Tiz nuzzled his ankle, and he reached down and scooped her up into his lap. Tizzy, he said, what are we going to do with all of this stuff? How are we going to get rid of it all? Tiz licked his hands. He suddenly felt nauseous. Tiz would have to go, too. Of course she would. It wasn't until Julius was sitting at a busy intersection halfway to the five and dime for string and packing paper that he realized the car. What was he going to do with the car? He loved this thing, a 1935 Ford Model 48 Deluxe sedan with a trunk and a Motorola radio. He'd bought it the prior summer from a used car dealer for $195, and since then he'd lavished care on it, overhauling it back in January with new rings, pins, mains and rods, valves, gaskets, water hoses, and seat covers, and one new tire. The supplies had cost him at least $50, and that was saying nothing about the hours and hours of labor he'd poured into the project. The next two weeks were a blur of preparations. He put everything up for sale. Well, everything except the silverware and tiz. But the market was glutted with the household goods of hundreds of other families in the same boat that Julius and Eunice were in, and he barely found any takers. As time ticked by, he had to let the car go for $100, less than half of what it was worth. A neighbor offered them $17 for the wooden RCA radio console, the one that he'd bought for $125. It was his only offer, so he took it. Every dollar counted. He didn't get a single offer on anything else, even the baby furniture, so he just gave it away to neighbors. Better that they should have it than that some random person should come along and pick it up from the curb. Two things he just could not put up for sale, the silverware and the dog. As for the silverware, well, Eunice wasn't sure if her parents would ever forgive them if they got rid of it, so they put it in a garage that some friends were renting and padlocking to store goods until they all got back someday. Tis they could have gotten some money for. She was a purebred Pomeranian, pedigreed, beautiful, well-behaved, probably worth around $50, but it was just too personal. Tis was a member of the family. There was a couple around the corner with young kids. He didn't really know them, but they always made a friendly fuss when Julius walked by with Tizzy, and the dog seemed to like them too. So he gave her to them. Not easy, but he took some comfort knowing she'd be in good hands rather than the hands of some stranger willing to pay 50 bucks for her. On May 10, 1942, they left their home. They spent the summer of 1942 confined at the assembly center at the Pomona Fairgrounds, and then went by train to the concentration camp at Hart Mountain in Wyoming. 
Another baby came along while they were out at Heart Mountain. Their lives in camp were no worse than anybody else's, and no better. They endured it. Back in Los Angeles after the war, they discovered that the garage had been ransacked and their silverware was gone. They moved into a small house in West Los Angeles, not far from the studios of 20th Century Fox, where, late in 1948, they were filming the comedy Chicken Every Sunday, starring Celeste Holm and a young Natalie Wood. But a couple of miles out Olympic Boulevard, it was not Chicken Every Sunday for Julius and Eunice Maruse Down and their two young children. The couple were struggling to make ends meet like so many others whose lives had been turned upside down by being locked up. It was right about then that they read in the Pacific Citizen newspaper that Congress had passed a law letting people in their situation make claims for what they had lost because of being removed from the West Coast back in 1942. It was called the Japanese Evacuation Claims Act. The newspaper said that there were forms to fill out and that the U.S. Attorney General was authorized to pay claims up to $2,500. Julius and Eunice talked about everything they'd lost, all of the opportunities and all of the income and of course the car and their radios and dishware and furniture and decorations and the crib and the bathinette and the tailor tot and all the other baby supplies. Their children were too old for that stuff now, but they were still out the money. And of course the silverware, their wedding present that someone had made off with while they were gone. And tis. After they got back to the coast, they drove back by their old place from before the war, knocking on doors looking for the family they'd given her to. But they couldn't remember the family's name, and nobody remembered seeing a Pomeranian recently. It wouldn't bring Tizzy back, but by God, the government could at least pay them something for her. Maybe they could use the money to buy a new dog. The kids would love a dog. Of course, they would have loved Tizzy, too. A lawyer told them to make a list of everything they could think of that they had sold at a loss or couldn't sell, and estimate what everything was worth, and then bring him the list, along with any paperwork they had to prove they owned what they said they owned. The only thing they could dig up was a photograph of Eunice's little brother with two-thirds of their Ford sedan in the background. They also got their mechanic from before the war to write up a little note confirming that they had in fact owned the car. That was all they had by way of proof. When they met with the lawyer, he asked them to go down their list so he could advise them about what the law would let them make a claim for and what it wouldn't. Well, for starters, I would have made about 1800 bucks a year pressing sweaters if I hadn't been let go because of evacuation, Julius said. Three years, that's 5400 bucks. Not covered, the lawyer said. What do you mean, not covered? It's not covered. That's what we lawyers call special damages, and it's not covered. Here's the language in the statute. The Attorney General shall not consider any claim for loss of anticipated profits or loss of anticipated earnings. That's what it says right there in the statute. So forget what you would have earned. Special damages, not covered. What else do you have? Well, we feel we're owed money for everything they put us through, Eunice said. Some kind of compensation. Going into a concentration camp with a four-month-old baby? Leaving everything behind? How can you even put a price tag on this? You can't. We're just asking for $1,000 for that. Not covered, the lawyer said, and he quoted the law again. The Attorney General shall not consider any claim for damage or loss on account of personal inconvenience, physical hardship, or mental suffering. Right there in the statute, he said. That's what we lawyers call general damages, not covered. What else? 
So they turn to the physical things, the car and the furniture and the dishware and the radios and the silverware and the knickknacks. Now we're talking, said the lawyer, and he took the list from them and looked over the dollar amounts they come up with. He said the amounts look reasonable. They showed him the photograph with their car in it and the note from the mechanic. That's all the proof we have on the Ford sedan, Julius said to the lawyer. The lawyer said it ought to be fine. Eunice told him they didn't have receipts for anything else they were claiming, just their word. The lawyer said it was okay, the commission wasn't insisting on paperwork for what they were calling the pots and pans claims, the little stuff. They only wanted proof on the big ticket items, so they should be okay. He looked back at the list. What's a Pomeranian? The lawyer asked. It's a little dog, fluffy, cute. This one was a purebred, it had a pedigree. We're estimating $50 for her, Julius said. Her name was Tiz, Eunice said. Okay, got it. We'll claim for Tiz, the Pomeranian, said the lawyer. There was a pause, and then the lawyer said, Can I ask you something? It's a little awkward, but I feel like I've got to ask. Your last name is Down. That's not a Japanese name. Mr. Down, don't take this the wrong way, but you don't really look Japanese. And Mrs. Down, well, you look whiter than Catherine Hepburn. Let me read you what the law says. It says, The Attorney General shall have jurisdiction to determine, according to law, any claim by a person of Japanese ancestry against the United States. I'm not 100% sure you two even qualify. No point in applying, no point in paying me, if you don't count under the statute. Julius heaved a sigh. He didn't like having to explain this, and he'd had to explain it a lot since Pearl Harbor. Look, I'm a citizen of Japan, he said. I was born there, in Yokohama, in 1922. I came here when I was two years old. I understand, the lawyer said, but the law doesn't say citizens of Japan can apply. It says a person of Japanese ancestry can apply. We lawyers have to draw a distinction between citizenship and race. This law is talking about your race, not your citizenship. Julius asked the lawyer for a piece of paper and drew his family tree. He sketched it back through four generations, back to his great-grandparents. His father's mother's mother was Japanese and his mother's mother's mother was Japanese. Everyone else on the chart was English or Irish or Portuguese. Hmm, the lawyer said. Interesting. That might fly. And how about you, Mrs. Down? Eunice said she was Caucasian, all the way back as far as anybody knew, but she went into camp with her husband and their infant daughter. The government had given what it called mixed marriage spouses a choice. They could stay home, or they could accompany their Japanese family members into camp. Some choice. She loved her husband, and they had a four-month-old baby. What was she going to do? They'd made her sign a waiver when she went into camp back in 42, and she'd brought it with her to the lawyer's office because she was expecting questions like these. The waiver said that she was requesting what it called the privilege of accompanying her family through all stages of exclusion, evacuation, and resettlement in all respects as if she were a person of Japanese ancestry. Some privilege. In exchange, she had had to agree that she would abide by all of the rules and regulations governing the Japanese and waive the right to leave camp except with the explicit permission of the camp director. That's what I did, Eunice told the lawyer. I went to Pomona, and then I went to Hart Mountain, and we lost all of our property, and I deserve to be compensated just like anybody else who went through what we went through. Look, I understand, the lawyer said, but the law says it's only for people of Japanese ancestry. I'll submit the forms, but I want you to know, you might run into problems. Julius asked why it mattered. 
if he was a person of Japanese ancestry, he could apply and he could get the compensation for everything they'd lost. No, the lawyer said, you can get 50% of the value of what you lost. California has what we lawyers call community property. That means that in a marriage, each spouse owns half of everything, but only half. It's not like that in a lot of other states, especially back east. There, a husband and wife each own 100% of everything together. What's mine is yours, and what's yours is mine, that kind of thing. Not here in California. Here, each of you owns half. So, Mr. Down, the most you can get is your half. To get all of it, Mrs. Down, you'd have to qualify under the law, too. The lawyer shook his head. Weird case. A lot of wrinkles. I'll file for you, but like I said, there could be problems. That was May of 1949. By 1951, they had heard nothing. Julius wrote a note to the Justice Department in Washington asking why his case was taking so long when friends of his, who had filed later than he had, were already getting their checks. A lawyer wrote back apologizing for the delay and saying that they'd encountered some difficult legal issues regarding his and his wife's ancestry and that they were doing their best to clear the case up as quickly as they could. So their lawyer had been right, a lot of wrinkles. Finally, in March of 1953, four years after they filed their claim and 11 years after they'd been forced from their home, their lawyer let them know that a decision had come in. Good news, the lawyer said, and he asked him to come to his office so he could explain things. This was the good news. Of the $412 they had claimed, the commission allowed them $314.95. The commission had had some reservations about the silverware because the law was to compensate people for losses caused by evacuation, and technically the reason they lost the silverware was not because they were evacuated, but because somebody stole it. But the commission was persuaded that because they never would have put the silverware in a spot where it could be stolen if they hadn't been evacuated, the loss should count under the law. The difficult issues for the commission hadn't been whether the losses counted. It was whether Julius and Eunice counted, counted as persons of Japanese ancestry. Julius's situation didn't trip them up too much. The commission noted in its decision that at the time the military removed Japanese Americans from the coast in 1942, it defined someone as a person of Japanese ancestry if he or she had one Japanese great-grandparent out of 16. Basically a one drop of blood rule. Since Julius had two Japanese great-grandparents, that made him Japanese enough to be removed. And if he was Japanese enough to be removed, then he was Japanese enough to be compensated. Here's where it got tricky, though, the lawyer said to the Downs. Eunice, the commission could not come up with a way to call you a person of Japanese ancestry. You're white all the way back. But they looked at the fact that you actually were removed, and you had to follow all of the rules, and you couldn't leave camp without permission. And they realized that while theoretically you had the choice to stay home while Julius went to camp with your baby, in reality that was no choice at all. So they decided that you have what we lawyers call constructive Japanese ancestry. That means that you're not really Japanese, but the law treats you as if you were. Which is all a long-winded way of saying that both of you qualified under the statute, and you basically got all of what you asked for instead of just half. But we didn't, Julius said. We asked for around $400, and you said they're giving us less than that. It was the dog, the lawyer said. They said you can't claim for the dog. That stung. Tis had been the hardest thing for them to give up, the thing they missed the most. No amount of money could really make up for losing her, but it hurt that she was the one thing the commission wouldn't allow. 
Eunice asked why. Because you didn't try to sell her. You just gave her away to someone you thought would take care of her. Let me quote what the tribunal said here. The evidence did not exclude, as a reasonable inference, the possibility that claimant could have sold the dog for its then fair value and thus have avoided loss from its disposition. The government's only going to pay for what it caused, the lawyer said. Evacuation didn't cause you to lose the value of your dog. You caused it when you didn't put her up for sale. It's what we lawyers call intervening causation. Eunice and Julius sat still for a few moments, Eunice with her mouth slightly agape, and Julius with his eyes cast down to the floor. Well, maybe that's what you lawyers call it, Eunice said. I call it a goddamn outrage. And they got up and they walked out. Oh, give me land, lots of land under starry skies above. Don't fence me in. Let me ride. Thanks for listening to this episode of Scapegoat Cities. If you like what you hear, let me know by leaving a comment at scapegoatcities.org. Or better yet, let your friends and family know on Twitter or Facebook or however else you like to tell your people about the podcasts you like. Maybe even turn on some people you don't know to Scapegoat Cities by rating and reviewing it on iTunes or wherever else you go to get your podcasts. I'm Eric Muller, and again, thanks for listening. Let me wander over yonder till I see the mountains rise. I want to ride to the ridge where the west commences and gaze at the moon until I lose my senses. I can't look at hobbles and I can't stand fences. Don't fence me in.